for not just helping out with date night, but really making it possible. Um, we had a marriage event Friday night, if you weren't able to join us. But um, there's no one I'd rather partner with to do something like that than Joey and his beautiful wife, Andrea. So um, just just incredible. Um, he, he really made it what it was, and so it was fun to lock, lock hands and, and walk forward in that. So, um, yeah, thanks for that, Joey. It was good. Um, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, we've been walking through 1 Corinthians. And I want to make it very clear before we, we even start to read this or before I say anything about it, that this chapter and this whole book, but especially this chapter, is written to and geared towards believers in Jesus Christ. So, if you're here today and you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, keep that in mind while we're reading and keep that in mind while I'm speaking today. And consider it as a great opportunity just to hear what it really looks like to be a believer in community within the church. And it's actually a beautiful thing. And I think we're going to see that in this text, even though it's a little harder to stomach. So, um, believers, though, put on your seatbelts. I want to start out with a little story. So, a year and a half ago, um, I came down with a really sharp stomach pain. Okay, probably... It was good 12, 18 hours, and it was still there, and it was like one particular spot, and I, you know, trying to lay in a certain way to relieve the pain, and just trying to get rid of it, you know, and a lot of you know where I'm going with this. Turns out I had appendicitis, Um, and I didn't know that, though, right? So I'm just in pain, and then finally, uh, I drove myself to the emergency room. Heather was off running some errands, and I don't go to the doctor, okay? I don't like going to the doctor. I know they're helpful. I know I should go more than I do. Um, but, but I especially don't go to the emergency room. All I see is dollar signs. All I can think is dollar signs. All right. Um, many of you are probably with me, but, but there I am, I'm driving myself in pain to the emergency room. So that's, that's how bad it was. And of course I had appendicitis, um, had to have my appendix taken out. Um, otherwise I probably would have died because that's what happens when your appendix explodes. So. Imagine a world before we knew that what appendicitis was and what would happen when our appendix burst. People would just die. They'd have sharp stomach pain for a while and then they'd just be dead. So I'm really grateful for modern medicine. But but just remember, it was if if you wouldn't have if you don't have your appendix removed or it taken care of, it's a death sentence, and it would have been. So a failure to deal with appendicitis produces contamination of the whole body. Failure to deal with problems in a church will contaminate the whole church body. And that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's writing to address many problems in the local church that he planted. He planted this church, and now he finds out all these things are happening. He's writing to confront some of these problems. In, in a loving, fatherly way. And so we saw in chapters 1 through 4, he was going after divisions. They were just not unified. And we talked about that the last several weeks. And the next several weeks, chapters 5 through 7, he's confronting sexual immorality in the church. And theolo- theologian, who's actually a theologian, by the way, unlike other people that have been quoted up here, Gordon Fee said 
that in describing 1 Corinthians and the 1 Corinthian church that there was a number of attitudes and behaviors that required surgery without killing the patient. Okay? So Paul's pointing out those attitudes and behaviors. And so we're looking at sexual immorality. So there you go. Let's jump in. The table is set. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually, actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Okay. Here's the behavior. Here's the behavior of what's going on. And, and let's just use kind of the, the uh, surgery analogy that I started with with the appendix. So here's the tumor, the sinful behavior going on in the church. It's a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. Okay, I'm not going to go into that here. Um, but think about this. Paul says here that the pagan, non-Christian society of Corinth was not okay with that behavior. But the church was okay with that behavior at this point. A super sexualized culture. That's what Corinth was at the time. Didn't even approve of this. Now let's look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? The Corinthians' attitude is, hey, let's celebrate. This is awesome. Look at this. This guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Yay, we have a cancerous tumor. What? What's more alarming is not the sexual immorality. What's more alarming is the Corinthian church's attitude towards it. That's the greater sin here. That they're, they're celebrating it. And it's a result of dualism. And I talked about this during the first sermon on Corinthians. But just as a reminder, they, they were like, you know what? I'm spiritually good. I believed in Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. Jesus took care of my sins. That's awesome. So now I'm going to live physically like hell while I'm here on this earth. That's what they thought. Spiritually, I'm good. So physically, I can live however they want. So that's why they were celebrating this. They're saying, look, we're so free in Christ, we can allow this. Arrogance. It's arrogance. Paul says it that. You're arrogant. God's grace will cover it. No big deal. Sin is always a big deal to God. Sin put Jesus on the cross. He didn't die so we could live however we wanted. So let's think for a minute. Hmm. Do we know of a culture that celebrates sexual immorality? Hmm. He says you should be mourning. And that word there means to grieve as if you lost somebody that you, that you hold dear. It's like losing a loved one. You should be grieving. Sin, especially unrepentant sin, must be grieved in the life of a believer. And it's clearly unrepentant. It never says that in here, but it does say it because the church was supporting it. Which points to the action that they should have taken, which is removal. So the end of verse 2. And let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. 
And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Wow. Here's what he's saying. You must perform surgery. It must be removed. Removing this guy from your church, at least for a season, until he repents of his sin, is the right thing to do. It would actually be unloving to not take care of this cancerous, sinful tumor. And Paul says in here that he's present in spirit. Why does he go on about that? I'm present in spirit. He's doing it because he's like, you know what? Corinthian church leaders, you're not acting like leaders. You're celebrating this. So I'm going to be the leader here and do what's supposed to be done because you guys don't have the guts to do what's supposed to be done. Paul's taking the initiative, but the action still has to be taken by the church with the spirit present, it says. So he's saying, you know what? Remember. Remember when I talked earlier in 1 Corinthians, remember early in this letter, I was talking about the special presence that is given when God's people meet, when the church gathers. Remember that. So you guys need to get together and do this together. That way it's not one leader making some emotional decision about kicking somebody out. No, you guys are deciding together. Yes, this person is in sin and they're not repenting and we've gone to them and we've gone to them and we've gone to them and we've gone to them. Except they haven't even gone to them. They've just celebrated it. So the church leaders need to repent first. (laughs) And it says there's this phrase in here that's that's difficult but i don't think it's that difficult verse five um you are to deliver this man to satan okay what is that obviously paul is not saying take this guy chain him up bring him to satan physically here you go satan put him in a cage see you later no obviously not that right he first john five verse 19 says the whole world lives lies in the power of the evil one so that, that helps us make a little bit more sense of this. He's not literally bringing him to Satan. He's, they're just saying, hey, put him outside the church. Don't let him be part of your gatherings. Don't let him be part of the church for a season. Because the world, the unbelieving world, is in the power of Satan. Now God is sovereign over everything. He's all-powerful, right? So God is sovereign even over Satan's power, but for this season in history, the world lies in the power of the devil. So that's what it means when he says, deliver this man to Satan. Just kick him out of the church. Why? Because he's acting like an unbeliever. It says at the end of verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's why you do it. You're praying that the outcome will be repentance of sin, that he'll start to act like a believer. That he'll realize that he's on a path path to death and he's bringing people with him and turn to the path of life. This is the best way. This is for your flourishing. Right? God, God doesn't put guidelines for sex and for other things in life. So that we just sit there and go, oh man, I can't do that, I can't do it. No, it's because it's for our best. 
You don't have to look far in our culture to see that doing uh, sex God's way is for our best and for our flourishing. Think of all the broken families. Think of all the movements out there now are because people corrupted a beautiful thing. So this line here, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, gets a lot of attention when this passage is brought up. And it should, I think. But don't miss the main point. We must confront sin in each other's lives. That's what Paul's saying to this church. You have to confront this sin. Why? Why do we have to do that? Verse 6 through 8 helps us with that. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The body is more important than any one individual part. The body is more important than any one individual part. That's what he's saying here. In removing one, you're helping the whole. So he uses this analogy of Passover. So let me catch you up to speed on what's happening. Because to them, they would have understood this. To us, we're like, what's going on? So Passover um, was a feast that originally uh, was a meal that they made um, to celebrate the fact that while Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, when they were in Egypt, they were slaves, Okay, Um, God delivered their firstborns from death. And the way that happened is God was trying to get Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to let them go, to let the people go. And he wouldn't. They sent all these plagues and it was just horrible. And so the final straw was that this angel of death sent by God was going to kill all of the firstborn. Now, in order to escape that, they they sacrificed a lamb and put the blood of this lamb on their doorposts and then had a meal to celebrate that God was going to literally pass over them. And And then after that, Pharaoh did let them go. So God didn't just deliver them from their firstborns being killed. He delivered them from slavery. And so now... They have this festival every year to celebrate that God delivered them from bondage so that the Jewish people would remember what happened. So as part of that, the Jewish people would remove all the leaven or all the yeast in their homes before they would sacrifice that lamb, Okay, before they would do that. And it was symbolic of removing sin. We're going to get right with God was the symbol that it represented. So, um, it says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. In applying this to the Corinthians, he's saying, you know what? Um, You're already spotless and your sin is already taken care of because of Jesus. It says, as you really are unleavened. Leaven represents sin. You already are without sin. You have a new identity. You're not characterized by sin anymore. You're already delivered from slavery and from death. This is why Jesus was sacrificed for your sin. Don't make a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross by tolerating brash, unrepentant sin. 
That's what he's saying here with this analogy. He's saying doing this, getting, re- getting rid of unrepentant sin will allow you to celebrate, it says in verse 8, this festival. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Sincerity and truth, that's moral purity. So Christ, our Passover lamb, the gospel that Jesus came, died for our sins while we didn't deserve it and then rose from the dead, that truth saves us. So we can display Jesus to this world. We can display God to this world and make God look really good. So the principle to help us understand why we would ever ask anyone to leave this church or why Paul and God would ever ask any church to remove anybody is that the body is more important than any one individual part. It makes Jesus' death and his resurrection look more beautiful when his death and resurrection actually changed the church. Think of it like this. Navy SEALs would never be okay with a soldier who wasn't constantly improving in their physical skills. Wouldn't happen. Be sent home. An NFL team owner would, would never get his job back if he every year he won like one game. Okay, we got the Olympics going on right now, which I think is kind of fun, by the way. Lots of, lots of uh, sports I never uh, could even dream up. They're doing... Um, and it, it, it's pretty sweet. But um, think of that. No one would, no one would, no country would ever be okay with having athletes compete that aren't growing in their skills and wouldn't represent the country well. It just wouldn't happen. You don't get to represent our country. Sorry. So why would we think that Jesus would be okay with the church who he died for when they didn't deserve it, not changing and becoming more like him? He's not okay with that. We, we sang earlier in the song, So Will I, that we see God's heart in everything that He says. Here's God's Word. Here's His heart. Sin is a big deal. Sin was, was taken care of by Jesus Christ. So now, Whenever we choose to live in that sin, and I'm not saying we'd be perfect, because I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, but anytime we say that it's okay and I don't have to deal with it, we're saying, you dying on the cross, Jesus, didn't matter. It's like spitting on his face while he's on the cross. We're saying sin, sin is not a big deal. And God did not say that sin was not a big deal. Never says that. Sin was such a big deal that he had to come and die for it. So why do I need and want Jesus if he doesn't change anything? Couldn't you hear someone who doesn't believe in Jesus asking you that? Why would I want your Jesus if he's not changing anything in your life? Why would I want your Jesus if he's not doing some work in your life? So let's look at the last section of this, verses 9 through 13. What do we do with this? 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Man, I thought this was going to get easier as we went along. Um, Two main principles here for us. First principle is that the church is a hospital for broken sinners. Church is a hospital for broken sinners. We see that in verse 10. Right? He's saying, hey, I told you not to associate with immoral people, but I don't mean people who are unbelievers. Don't hold non-Christians to Christian standards. That's ridiculous. Okay? That's like expecting a cat not to come up to you and do their little uh, spine thing and rub up on your leg like they do and meow and all, and, and you, you know, in the dark and you just see their beady little eyes and you just, oh, I don't get it. If you, if you like cats, I'm sorry. I don't, you're going to have to convince me. I'm not there. But I'm glad you do if they bring you joy. But, um, but why, would, why would we expect a cat to act like a dog? Why would we expect a cat not to do cat things? Okay, so why are we so surprised when we look around and we see a world around us living in sin and immorality? Of course. We know that by nature we're sinful, so that's, that's just what we do by nature. Think about this. Maybe you've already thought of this, but why wasn't the church asked to remove this mother-in-law as well? Most likely she was an unbeliever. You don't treat unbelievers like believers. But for believers, here's a good question. Are you making this church a hospital for broken sinners? Is this a safe haven for people? Or do you not talk to certain people because they do fill in the blank? Do you look down on unbelievers for their sin issues? If you're here and you're just checking it out and you're curious and you're seeking, you're more than welcome here. We welcome you as you are. We welcome your questions, your struggles. We want to listen to your story. I would love to hear your story and just get to know you. Because the church really should be, at least, a hospital for, for broken sinners. But the second principle here is that hospitals treat patients once they're admitted for the good of everybody. Hospitals treat patients once they're admitted for the good of everyone. What if you admit yourself into a hospital, into the ER, like I did when I had appendicitis, and the doctor says, you know what, I don't want to hurt you, so I'm not going to treat you. Not going to do it. I don't want to hurt you. Wouldn't make sense. Doctor wouldn't do that. Right? I'd be like, no, doc, I want you to hurt me because I don't want to die. Okay, do what you got to do. All right, give me some pain meds. We'll be all right, you know. 
But what's interesting about the church is that patients become nurses and doctors. And then we just kind of cycle back and forth too. At some times in our lives, pastors included, right? We need to be the patients because we have sin in our life that I need help with, right? And then, and then at other points in, in areas where I'm stronger and, and this person's weaker, I need to be the nurse or the, the patient, right? Or the doctor and help out the patient. And so we just kind of cycle through that. But what if, what if a nurse or a doctor came down with something and the nurse was just like, you know what? It's not a big deal. Okay, let's say it was contagious. They had some contagious disease. Not a big deal. And the doctors are like, yeah, it's not a big deal. She has that. What's going to happen? The whole hospital is going to get infected. Patients, nurses, doctors alike. It wouldn't be a good deal. You have to treat them once they're admitted for the good of the whole. We have to help each other with sin issues in our lives. We're not perfect people, but we're repentant people. We're not ignoring sin in our lives, and we're not ignoring sin in other people's lives either. But what is repentance? I've talked about that a lot. What am I talking about here? Repentance means to turn your back on sin. It's one step farther than confession, which Joey talked about last week, which was in the text, which was awesome. You should go listen to it if you weren't here and didn't get a chance to listen to it yet. But Joey talked about living lives of confession, getting everything into the light before God and other people. And that's what we have to do. Repentance, though, is taking that one step farther in God's strength and then letting God change our lives moving forward with the help of other people. It's not like, hey, I've got a problem, that's cool, praise Jesus, and then just leave it there. Is that why Christ died? So we could just say, I struggle, and then just stay there? I remember from this stage confessing um, the struggle of just living too comfortably and not doing as good a job as I could at just being a good friend to my physical neighbors at home. And that's gotten better. But you know what? I remember confessing it, and then someone in our church asked me about it about a week later. How's that going? I'm like, I've done nothing. I'm still living way too comfortably. Because I confessed it. I even confessed it in front of a lot of people, and we, we're probably guilty of this a lot. Confessing our sin in front of a lot of people, our struggles in front of a lot of people. Oh, good, I'm doing a good... No, that's, that's a great start then we need to act on it. And I need help to act. I need people asking me, how's that going? If I, if I ever confess anything from up here or, or just one-on-one, ask me about it. I want you to. I need you to. And you need that in each other's lives as well. We need to move beyond confession to repentance. And there's power in Christ-centered community. You know, I've never had victory over sin in my life, or I haven't had much victory over sin in my life with the help of other people, and I know that you can't either. Come out of hiding. Be healed. You know, this guy's problem wasn't essentially that he struggled with sin. This guy's problem 
is that he wasn't repentant of sin. So come out of hiding. Stop pretending like you're not struggling and get some help. Don't ignore sin in each other's lives either, though. And how do we do that? How do we go about that? Do we just kick people out like this, like it says here? No, we look to other scriptures, and Matthew 18 really helps us. So you can look at these scriptures on the screen with me. Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So let me talk through this process and what this should look like and what we try to make this look like here in our church. If you have a problem with someone or you see that someone is struggling with sin, you go to them one-on-one. I have people come to me all the time and go, I have a problem with someone. You know what I ask them first? Did you talk to them about it? No. Well, then I can't help you. Now, I'll pray for you. I'll give you some wisdom to to how to go about that conversation. Absolutely. But we got to go one-to-one to each other. This should be common. This should be happening all the time if we're actually doing relationships well in this church. Because relationships are messy. People are messy. We're sinful. We're all messed up. So uh, it's going to be hard, but we can't just sweep things on the rung. We have to go to each other with them. In Galatians 6.1, where it talks about restoring each other with gentleness, right? We don't just go, hey, I see this in your life. Ugh. No, you go to them and go, hey, I see this in your life. And I want to help you out. And I'm here for you. I want to pray for you. I want to walk alongside you. Maybe you share a time where you've struggled with it yourself. Maybe you are struggling with that same thing yourself, right? So one-on-one. And then the next step we see in these verses is that we bring one or two other people with us. Not just random people, people that this person knows and loves. And you plead with them, hey, you're walking down a path of death. Come down the path of life with us. We want to help you. We love you. But you only do that if they're not listening to you. If they're just stiff-arming, yeah, whatever, I don't care. If they continue to do that and go, yeah, I'm living in that. Doesn't matter. It says here, tell it to the church. So here we mean at least the elders, if not their connection group members. And again, in a spirit of, hey, we want to help you. Don't walk down that path. It'll lead you places you don't want to go and you don't want to be. And then, lastly, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. So you're just saying as a church, we're, right now you're acting like you're not a believer. So you're not welcome here, at least until you repent. Here's the thing. I never want to have to do that. None of our leaders here ever want to have to do that. It's painful. And if it's not painful, that church leader isn't, going about leadership with the right heart. No leader should want this. So let's just make a deal. Okay? Right here, you and me, let's just make a deal. 
If you've got some sin in your life and someone confronts you with it, just own it. And we won't ever have to get there. Okay? Sweet. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Good. Oh, wow. I feel a lot better. Um, maybe you're here this morning like, you know what? I'm good. I don't do what this guy in Corinthians, I, this dude in Corinthians, I'm not doing that. Okay? So I'm pretty good. Uh, good to go. Well, let me reread verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Okay. It's not just sexual sin here. It's saying any unrepentant sin is a big deal. Greed, idolatry, that next word is best translated verbally abusive, drunk, swindlers, people who cheat other people, scammers. Now, it's very common for people to come to me and confess sexual sin, and I, I think that's fantastic. I hope that happens more and more, that people are coming into the light with their sin struggles, especially their sexual sin struggles, because it's all around us. So I can't imagine that... Uh, that we don't have a lot of people struggling in some way with that. So that's fantastic. You know what I've never heard, though? Never heard someone come to me and go, you know what, Matt? I'm greedy. I spend my money recklessly. I use my resources selfishly all the time. Being generous to others to the church, to missions is really inconvenient. When I do finally feel comfortable financially, I do not want to spend it on other people one bit. I struggle with greed, man. I've never heard that. And I can't imagine that at Stonebridge Church that's located in America in 2018, nobody struggles with greed. Confess. Repent. Of all of our struggles, of greed included to one another. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. One of Jesus' favorite subjects was money. He talked about it a lot. Why? Because he knew that a lot of what was wrong with people's hearts had to do with the way they spent their money. So, have you ever had a conversation with anybody outside your spouse about your finances, and about how much you give away. If you feel super offended that I even just said that, you probably struggle with greed. Because when we decide to follow Jesus, we don't decide to follow Jesus and go, you know what? You can have my marriage and my parenting and my job, but my finances are mine. Sorry, Jesus doesn't work that way. You give your whole life to Jesus. You're like, you know what? It's my business, not anyone else's. Are we allowed to have areas that are off limits? How is my heart going to change in regards to money if I'm never talking about it, the struggle with other believers? When someone asks you for money, or for something, do you immediately give excuses why you can't help? Or instead, do you try to find a way that you could sacrifice to help this person? See, most of us probably need some heart surgery in the area of greed. 
but you can't have surgery on a condition that you don't even recognize. And you can't have surgery on a condition that nobody knows about. This list covers all of our sin struggles. Did you catch the next one? Idolatry. Treating things like God that are not God. All sin, if not dealt with, leads us down paths of death. Almost all sin could be categorized under idolatry. We're making something else more important than God. All sin, if repented of, and we're working on it with Christ's strength, with His people, leads down the path of life for your good, for the body's good, and for God's glory. So, I beg you, live a life of repentance. Let Jesus change you through His people. Make it so we never have to remove anyone here at Stonebridge because all of us are just committed to making our sin known and then working on it with each other. No hiding. Because you see that it's not just destructive to me. It's not just destructive to my family. Sin is destructive to this whole body of Christ. No matter how private you think it is, your sin struggle. And so I need to come into the light because the body is more important than any one individual part. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray that you would help us all in here to do some good heart analysis this week, that we would just come before you and ask, God, what are, what are those areas of my life where people maybe even, even come to me and said, hey, I see this in your life, and we've just stiffed on armed up. Help us to live in the light, Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that even though we don't deserve it, you call us your own, Jesus, and nothing can separate us from you, God. Nothing. And so I pray that we would live in that reality. That that reality would change us from the inside out, God. Change our hearts that would change our actions. God, I, pray, I know there's people in here today that have been thinking, oh yeah, I, I have this thing, this deep, dark secret that I don't want to share with anybody. I pray that they would find the strength to share that with someone and get some help. I pray that they would see it's freeing, God. It is free to live in the light. Even though the world says, no, it's way more free to, to just sin up a storm, I pray that they would see that, no, actually, this is, this is the best way. This is the way you created us to live. You made us, God. You know what's best for us. So help us to submit to you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.